Good morning, everybody. I want to continue to uh, do our Renew series, and this morning we're looking at a text out of Isaiah in the Old Testament. You can follow along on the screen, or you can pull out the Bible that is in front of you. We're in the sixth chapter. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a tenebreth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. May God help us to understand this, his word. Our text this morning is about God's shaking, God's shaking of the heavens and the earth, God's shaking of his people. I want to read again for verse 4 for our context. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And not only is the throne room shaking, but Isaiah himself, his own thresholds of his, of his own life are being shook by God, the counter with God. And so this morning, I want to give you three signs, three ways to know that you've encountered God. One is that there's a shaking And then secondly, there is an assurance. And then third, uh, there is a surrender. And our own experience, and the Bible puts it in an order, I think is intentional because this is the order in which it happens uh, to us. And so let's begin with the shaking. Holy, 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 verse 3 says, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The host in, in this passage can be literally train, uh, tra- uh, uh, translated the Lord of armies of angels. That is, that 
Uh, God isn't just the head of, of an army, but armies, plural. We know that because even Jesus will say that if my father wanted to rescue me, if I called upon uh, my father in heaven, he would send legions of angels. But it also says that this glory fills the earth, the whole earth being inhabited by the glory. And, and glory means the weightiness, the heaviness, the matter of God. That is that literally as we see the beauty of God's creation, whether we go to uh, uh, the sea or we've been to the mountains or that we have seen these great sights all over this world, we see that there has been a creator, one who has made this beauty. And that is the filling of this inhabiting this place with his glory, that he matters. Or maybe you know a little bit about the human body and you know how intricate and complex the human body is. And, and the conclusion you draw is that there must have been a maker. This didn't happen by an accident. It, a bunch of molecules didn't just come together and there was a human being. And the result of that is to recognize that that creator owns us. That creator writes our story that we really don't write it ourselves. And that's what it means that the glory of God has filled or inhabited the earth. That is, when we recognize who God really is, we're in awe. In fact, our text shows us that the very sight of God makes His loveliest creatures hideous by comparison. The seraphs, which is the most beautiful creatures around God. They're literally called the fiery ones is their name. They have unusual amount of wings. They have two wings in which they cover their face, two wings that cover their feet and two wings that they fly about. I don't know how they see. But obviously, when they're in the presence of God, they have to break eye contact because they're in the presence of a superlative being. Someone greater than themselves. And if that's true about seraphs, if that's true about the fiery ones, it is doubly true about humans. That when we're in the presence of God, we're undone. Just as Isaiah is. He says in verse 1, I saw the Lord. He was sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't know how long a train of a robe has to be, but I've seen some pretty long bride dresses that have long trains. But this one filled the whole place. What was Isaiah's response to seeing the Lord on his throne in this long train? It says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people who have unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The godliest man in all of Israel was wrecked because he was in the presence of a superlative being. Why in the world? The great question that I have as I read this text is, why in the world would Isaiah say, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why wouldn't he say, I'm a man of unclean feet? Or, I'm a man of un, uh, unclean hands? You know that verse that says, out of the abundance of the heart, the man speaks. Why didn't he say, I'm a man of unclean heart? Why did he say, I'm a man of unclean lips? Well, 
I speculate the reason is because of the significance of his calling. He's a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God. That is his strength, where he gets his validation, where he gets his identity is his ability to speak on behalf of God as the prophet. And that is with his mouth. And so what what Isaiah is saying here is, woe is me, I'm lost. I am a man who has a mouth in which I am ashamed. And what he's saying here is that the best lips in all of Israel, the ones that we would put on billboards or in commercials, he's ashamed of in comparison to the holiness of God. One way that you and I know that we've encountered God is that when we sense not that our weaknesses have been exposed, but even our best parts that we find out are also unworthy. And that shakes your very foundation because they're the things that you think you're really good at, that I'm good at. And that's why you know you've encountered God, not when he exposes merely your weaknesses, but also your strengths, the things you've been relying on, the things you get your validation from, the things you have your identity in. Let me just give you, this is a common experience, not the encounter with God is common, but this idea of being in the presence of a superlative being to you wrecks us. We know that. Uh, uh, Scott Furness, when he's up here uh, playing, we know that if Scott really sat with Dave Matthews or if Jimi Hendrix could come back from the dead, Scott would have to burn his guitar and sell tomatoes. Maybe you're a, a tremendous lyricist and you know how to write in a way that moves people until you've read some of the words of Kanye West and you recognize uh, you just fumble the words. Or maybe you're a composer, you write beautiful music that moves people until you find out that Mozart wrote most of his greatest works while he was still a teenager. You know, if I had wanted to be a composer and I had to compete against Mozart, I would just sell insurance. Maybe you're physically attractive and you take great pride in your beauty until you're in the presence of stunning beauty and that makes you feel ugly. Maybe you're an incredibly generous person and we're in a church full of generous people until you find out that C.S. Lewis, by the end of his life, he was given away 90% of his income from the Chronicles of Narnia and living off of only 10%. Maybe you think you've done great acts of mercy until you find out about uh, Katie Davis, who her and her husband couldn't have children, and so they sold everything they had in America and moved to Uganda and adopted dozens of Ugandan orphans and stayed there. This is a common experience that we all have when we're in the presence of superlatives. We feel inadequate. I can really identify with Isaiah. I don't have a lot of skills. All my skills are tied up in my ability to communicate, my ability primarily to speak, sometimes to write. And though that I recognize that my intent often is always to, to bring good and not harm, I have to recognize that the effect sometimes is harm. You know, when we repent... We're often uh, trying to examine our hearts. What did I intend to do there? And sometimes it, it, our intents really are 
not good. But most of the time, our intent is not. I mean, how many times has your spouse told you, you hurt me, and then you said, but my, that wasn't my intent, as if that's an excuse over the hurt. See, we also need to repent of our effect on people. That is that simply sometimes even what we did not intend happens. And even with all of that, I still get a sense of grandeur about my mouth. And this whole idea that I have the ability to communicate well and not hurt. But in the presence of a superlative being, we can feel awfully wrecked. And in the presence of the most superlative being, our foundations are shaken. Every encounter in Scripture with God is like that. You think of judges. The man turns to his wife and says, We might as well prepare to die, for we have seen the Lord. Or you think about Job when he sees God. He says, My eyes have seen God, and I despise myself. Or Peter, when he sees Jesus out of the resurrection, go away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. I like this commentary that described Isaiah 6 this way. He said, God's holiness is his perfection and purity, his above aboveness, his beyond beyondness, his threatening superlativeness, and it makes us realize that we cannot be trivial with God. We cannot silence him. In an argument, we cannot condemn him, we cannot avoid him, we cannot disregard him, and we cannot disrespect him. So again, I ask you, have you ever been shaken like this? At least yet. Let me give you a little bit of encouragement, because that can sound very discouraging if you have not yet been shaken, or you're waiting for the shaking, or maybe you're in the midst of shaking. Here's the assurance C.S. Lewis tells a story in Narnia where, where Lucy finds out a lot about Aslan, the lion, and she's very concerned because every lion she's ever known are dangerous. And so she asks Mr. Beaver, Mr. Beaver, is, is Aslan good? And Aslan's, I mean, uh, uh, Mr. Beaver's response to her is, oh, my dear, he's not safe, but he is good. Your God is not safe, but He is good. He created the cosmos and promises that it, He will bring judgment to that cosmos who's trying to write its own story rather than the story He has for us. As Isaiah prepares to die after seeing the Lord, an angel comes and touches his mouth with a burning coal from God's altar. See it in verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And for the very first time, we see that the fire of God, the place of judgment, is also a place of grace. A fire that does not burn, but heals. How? We don't find that out until the very end of the passage. In verse 13, it talks about a holy seed. That is that... The context here is that Israel is going to be sent into exile for their sin. They had grabbed a hold of the pen and tried to write their own history. And God says, no, I write your history. It'll be good, but I write your history. And, And in order to teach you that lesson, I'm going to desolate 
your land. I'm going to send all of you into exile. I'm going to allow the, the armies to come in and level the city, the temple and Jerusalem altogether. But I'm going to leave a stump. You ever, you ever cut down a tree and leave the stump? There's a reason why they pull those stumps up or grind them down. If you leave a stump, if there's any life left in that tree, beginning we'll, we'll see that tree grow back. And if you leave it alone, new life will come. That's what's being said here, is that I, I'm going to just leave a stump of Jerusalem. I'm just going to leave a stump of Israel. And from that stump will come a seed, singular. Because he's thinking about another seed that was mentioned in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve wrestled the pen away from God to write their own story, to not to try to be the captains of their own ship, the masters of their own destiny, and God said, you're going to do that, you're going to do it under the curse. Because I want you, I want a relationship with you, I want all of you. In order to get you to come back to me, I'm going to make it very difficult for you to write your own stories. But I want to give you some hope. As I, as I toss you out of this paradise, I want you to know that, I, that from you is going to come a seed. And that seed, singular, is going to crush the head of the serpent, and that is make all things new. He's going to come and make all things new. And that, that seed, that person, that, that hope is going to show up and his name is going to be Jesus. And he is going to clean all of our dirty parts. I want you to notice that in that same verse I read, there's only one command and it is to behold. Notice that God doesn't say, or the angels don't say to Isaiah, Isaiah, you're, you're right, your mouth, you've got a potty mouth, now go and, and wash your mouth out with soap. Or go get her done, work hard, charge your, change your ways, be good. Those are all fruits, those are all results of beholding. Behold what? What God has done for us in Christ Jesus, the seed. That's why Robert Murray Machane, who lived... Uh, a couple of 300 years ago, said this, for every look at you take at your life, every time you look at your weakness, every time you look at your imperfections, every time you look at your strength and you're trying to validate your by your strength, I want you to look. In fact, I want you to take 10 looks at Jesus and, if, and, and see if that doesn't transform you. The God who wrecks you, rebuilds you into something beautiful. Isn't that what we want? Don't we, don't we really want to be perfected, to be a better who we are? No, nobody likes to drive around in a beat up old car. No, no, nobody is thinking, you know what? I really like that the, the power windows don't work in this car. We all want a new car. You know, I have never had a beat up car. I've had my children beat up the car I've had, but that's not the same thing. I came here with a pristine truck. By the time my children were done with it, it had so many dents and scratches and dings. Couldn't wait to trade it in. 
Because we want something that is good. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to take all the dents and dings and scratches. And he wants to make something new. But that requires a shaking. To mix the metaphor, we want a a powerful lion. But we want that lion to love us, not to eat us. And we have a God who is a lion who can eat us. But instead, he comes to us as a gentle lamb to save us. That's why Jesus is both. The more you fear God, hear this, the more you fear God, the less afraid of God you will be. That sounds confusing, contradictive, except the word fear means to to be in awe of the holiness, the the majesty, the glory of God, the fact that God is what matters most. That's why I love the Westminster Confession. It defines God this way. It says, God is infinite, eternal, unchanging in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. When you begin to think about God, is it so small, so narrow, your understanding of Him? As that expands, you've got no reason to fear. That's why he says, behold, fix your eyes on God. The more we are assured of his love and his forgiveness, and the more we will repent of the dirt in us, the more we behold. God wrecks us to rebuild us into something beautiful. That's why Job will say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. The almighty God, don't miss this, The Almighty God, the Lord of angel armies, is your daddy. Now, you may not have called your father daddy, but that's what we are told to call him. Abba, father, Abba means what we would say as the most familiar term. Maybe it's a papa or or dad, but that's what he's saying. He's not just your maker. He's your daddy. Two things continue to mystify me. The first one is this, that Christians can hear this and still be bored with God, still be unmoved by Him, still unshaken. And the second thing I'm I'm surprised by and it mystifies me is that I'm part of that group. This is what it means to be broken by God. So we can cry out with David. He's given us the words to cry. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So what what are we supposed to do with a God who shakes us and assures us that it won't destroy us, but instead make us new? How do we respond to that kind of generosity? Verse 8 says, whom will I send? Who will go for us? The Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are wondering, who's going to represent us? Who's going to speak for us on earth to the people? And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. Context is always important here. Isaiah is volunteering for professional suicide. How do you know that? Listen, verse 9, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Can you imagine this? You're not going to get anybody to go to seminary if this is going to be your calling when you're done. 
Make the heart of the people dull, that their ears heavy and blind their eyes, and hear with so that they can't hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long have I got to do this? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants. And houses without people. And land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is another way of saying this. Isaiah, for the rest of your life, you will preach, but they will not listen. You're going to preach, but there's going to be no applause, no validation, no affirmation. You're going to preach, but you're not going to have any friends in the ministry. You're going to preach, and the people that you're preaching to are not going to listen. They're, in fact, going to be hostile to you, hostile to your message, and hostile to your God. Are you still in now? Isaiah is still in. In fact, that's what he does. Why? Because Isaiah knows it's better to work in the, at the dung gate of the house of God than it is to dwell in the tents of the wicked. You know what the dung gate is? Jerusalem was a walled city. It had one gate by which all of the refuge, all of the mess of human beings, and, and in that time there were probably four or 500,000 people who lived in Jerusalem. And during Passover there was well over a million. And at Passover there's close to three million animals in the city. And what do you think they did with all that waste? They took it to this dung gate and piled it up. And then there was these professional people who came and took it away. Every day. And Isaiah is saying that it is better to have that job in the house of God than it is to dwell in the house of the wicked and be judged by God. Too often... I am terrified by the exposure that my life requires. Your approval is far too important to me. And verses 9 through 12 feel like a death sentence for a preacher. Do you fear being forgotten? That people won't remember you? Let me give you a little hard truth. You're going to be forgotten. There's no question about that. Anne Lamont was once asked, what will it be like a hundred years from now? Her response was, all new people. I have no idea. It may not be cars. We might be like the Jetsons. Or we might be beamed up like Scotty. But the point is, no matter what that is, a hundred years from now, no one in this room will be here on this planet. No one. And in a few generations, no one will remember your name. And certainly not anything you stood for or what you believed. Isaiah had no such fear because who validated him was God. You know what happens to poor Isaiah? The rest of the story is that Isaiah gets sawn into and dies. Proving Tertullian correct. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Are you concerned about ISIS or North Korea or the thousand other things that you read online? 
Imagine if you were in Hawaii just a few weeks ago when that siren, which never goes off, went off. And it, and it scared everybody because North Korea has been talking about that they can reach Hawaii. Where every child that you know, every friend that you would have could be gone in an instant. If you are validated here in any way on this planet, then you will leave no lasting legacy. Think about Isaiah, the most quoted prophet in the entire New Testament. Handel writes a whole symphony based on the words of Isaiah. People all over this world, doesn't matter what part of the world you're from, name their sons after Isaiah. When Isaiah surrenders... He has no conditions in which he surrenders. And you say, that's insane. Who does that? Who, who thinks it's a great idea to go talk to people who don't want to hear you? Who, do you th- well, who thought it was sane to go speak to people that will hate you for speaking to them? Well, let me give you someone, a patron saint of those people who preach and no one listens. His name was Nietzsche. Can you imagine? An atheist actually agrees with Christians on this matter. He says, those who dance are considered insane by those who can't hear the music. Those who dance are considered insane by those who cannot hear the music. To surrender without condition sounds insane by those who do not believe. If our faith does not cost us anything... We must ask ourselves, have we yet heard the music? Are we dancing with God? Are we dancing alone and to our own tune? Have we wrestled God for the pen to write our own stories? What's the music we want to hear? The holy seed is its stump. This is the music we can dance to. The one who came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. As the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so the Lord your God rejoices over you. One of the great questions is not, does God love you? We've had lots of verses for God so loved the world, but God demonstrated his own love. The real question is, does he like me? Or does he just put up with me? God isn't just like you. He rejoices over you. So much so that he's willing to shake us all the way down to the thresholds of our foundations in order to remake us, to make us new, to get rid of all the dings, all the scratches, all the dents, to replace the electric windows that won't go up anymore, to make us new. That's the gospel that we believe. My dad loved Barney Fife. Barney Fife was the the deputy for Andy Griffith and Mayberry, and Andy only gave Barney one bullet. And Barney wasn't allowed to even put the bullet in his gun until he was ready to shoot. He had to keep it in his pocket. That's the church. If you're new to EP, the church doesn't have much to offer you. In fact, it only has one thing it can offer you of any value. It's the one thing. But it is the one thing that matters. It's the one thing that can transform. It's the one hope about our future. 
It's the one hope about life right now. And it is called the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for everyone being here for us, gathering together and having hope in Jesus, the seed of the stump that came and cleaned all the dirty parts, the way it looked at at our strength and said, even that is unworthy. In the presence of the superlative being, we recognize that we are unholy. And yet you have promised through Jesus Christ to make us holy, that we carry his righteousness, his good deeds, and that makes us acceptable to you. And for anyone in the room that is struggling with that reality, I I pray that you might give them the assurance of the Spirit that they are not just merely liked or loved, but delighted in, that you rejoice over us. In Jesus' name, amen.